0: Today is February 13th, 2019, and my guest is political economist and author Michael Munger of Duke University. This is his 36th, count them, 36th appearance on Econ Talk. At least I think that's right. We last heard from him in October of 2018 discussing his book, Tomorrow 3.0. Mike, welcome back to Econ Talk.
1: It's a pleasure to talk, Russ.
0: I think you meant that. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> there was a certain, I don't know, radio sound of that, but. I'm going to take it, it can as. A, be, it can be both. I'm going to take it as legitimate. Our topic for today is a recent article you wrote in the Independent Review with Mario Villarreal Diaz, The Road to Crony Capitalism. Uh, what is that road?
1: Well, we're obviously trying to riff on uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And Road to Serfdom is often mischaracterized, where people say, Hayek says, if you take a single step, Uh, towards planning, you end up being communism. That's not what he said. What he said was there's a tendency towards collectivization, not least because if you start planning, it creates distortions that then require additional regulations. And before you know it, most of the economy is planned, even if all you did was regulate a few industries to begin with. So what we became interested in was an analogous problem. Might there be Looking at the way capitalism is working in the West now, might uh, Hayek, but of the left, say that there's a road to cronyism. Because the simple summary of the argument is that as industries mature, they invest more and more in new products, in new engineers, in cheaper ways to make things. And that's the essence of competition, and that's great. At some point, the first dollar that they might spend on lobbying becomes more profitable than the last dollar that they spent on pursuit of honest profits. What that means is that I'm hiring now people who are trying to lobby the government to protect my products from competition, to obtain tariffs, to obtain subsidies, and it would be surprising in a mature industry if if it were not true that the first dollar spent on lobbying and getting government help was not more profitable than the last dollar that I spent on investment. And once that happens, then it means that your industry owes some of its existence to the state. You become dependent on the state, and it's likely to see an expansion of that dependence. So what we became worried about was that the criticism that many people on the left have made for years is there's actually actually have a point. And what we noticed, and I'm I've done this myself, I'll say to one of my friends on the left, look, socialism doesn't work. Look at Venezuela, and they'll say, oh well that's not socialism. Well, I actually think that's where socialism leads. Socialism is a recipe for economic at least, totalitarianism. But likewise, if one of my friends on the left says, well look at Solyndra, or look at the way that many industries have basically gotten in bed with uh, the government, with the regulatory agencies that they depend on, I'll say, oh, well, that's not capitalism. Well, wait, that's, I'm making we'll the say same that's, mistake. That's crony capitalism. That's not that's the real crony. thing. Yeah, that's not real capitalism, But but what if it's true that as industries mature, they find that crony capitalism is more profitable in an accounting sense than playing it straight? And then I do this thing that I would criticize in other people. What I will say is, "Oh, we need better people. All we need, all we need, is better politicians that don't engage, don't allow this rent seeking, or we need better CEOs." That's the one thing, Russ, that you know that I cannot say because yep. the premise of Let's public choice rules. is yep. you cannot <laughs> say good people. Right. We need
0: uh, our premise is is on our team. Is that incentives matter and institutions matter, and the, with bad incentives, the best people become corrupted. And with good incentives, not-so-great people do the right thing. Uh, yes. So that's the that's – the, um, you're right. So you can't say that, so keep going.
1: Well, what that means is once you recognize that it would depend either on capitalists, corporate CEOs – leaving money on the table. That is, they would they would have to choose not to take legal but economically immoral actions that would get them protection from competition. Then I go imagine at the the, the yearly stockholders meeting, I, I'm the CEO and I tap on the microphone and say, well good morning. Thanks you all for coming. And I want to say that our profits are significantly lower, our accounting profits. Are significantly lower this year than they might be, but you'll be glad to know that the reason is that we decided not to engage in rent seeking. We have not used lobbyists to obtain protection from competitors. We have not obtained government subsidies that we might have obtained. And I wait for the applause and there's silence. And the stockholders say, what the heck? We need a new manager. So even if we did have a good manager, it's not sustainable in the sense that either we're likely to see stockholders who are in pursuit of legal profits, and I mean accounting profits. There, it's nothing illegal about using lobbying to obtain the benefits that I can get from the government. And actually, I have to say, we first started thinking about this seriously after I heard on Econ Talk Luigi Zingales basically summarize this argument a couple of times. It's not very original. What we tried to do is close the circle and point out that. If you think that the only solution to this problem is better people, you actually need to rethink that because that's the one thing that we cannot say. Now, Our, our point is, the short point is, capitalism in a democracy is not sustainable.
0: So that's deeply disturbing. Uh, it might be true. And I, like you, I also have this issue where I will point out some flaw of socialism, and they'll say, well, that's not real socialism. Or they'll say, well, that's not the kind of socialism I want. And so, similarly, I find myself doing this with capitalism, and I'm sure I've said it and conceded this point on Econ Talk in the past, that we do kind of do the same thing. We say, well, that's not the kind of capitalism I want. I want the real kind. The fundamental question that you raise in this article, which I think is a deep and important one, is, is there something inevitable about cronyism that's built into capitalism? Is it, uh, is it, is it somehow an illusion – excuse me, a delusion – Am I deluded in thinking there's such a thing as capitalism without cronyism, without government handing out favors? Now, my usual answer to this, by the way, and I'm going to critique it, but my usual answer is, well, there is such a thing as capitalism without cronyism if you have a constitution and you have a legal system and a legislative system that limits the power of government to hand out goodies. The problem with that argument is that Maybe built into the system is powerful capitalists then change the political system so that it can hand out goodies, and that's really I think the left's uh, critique right now. It's very clever, and it might be true, uh, which is it's inevitable. Like you say, it's just – it's part and parcel of the system, and to pretend otherwise is to delude yourself. Uh, I Just before we go on, I want to read the Milton Friedman quote that uh, came to mind a minute ago. Uh, That's, I think, deep and important. It says it's nice to elect the right people, but that isn't the way you solve things. The way you solve things is to make it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things at close quote. So the, the, the point there is that the counterpoint to that is, yeah, except that eventually the political system is going to be structured by capitalist influence to give out those goodies so that even good people do the wrong thing. So that's the thesis on the table. Um, I'm going to I'm going to challenge you. Uh, I'm sympathetic to it. I worry about it like you do. I'm thinking, am I just doing the same thing that my political opponents are doing? Am I living in a utopian world, where I'm imagining an ideal that is not um, credible, not realistic, can't can't exist? Uh, so so my first question for you in in thinking about this is why do you think this is a issue now you you and i are old enough to remember uh i have a decent memory of the last 40 years of of political economy in the united states and there are a lot of things that haven't changed (laughs) uh one of them is we subsidize agriculture uh and that is a vague statement that masks what really goes on, which is that a very small group of people capture a fairly large amount of money. Uh, I I learned from Gary Becker, he wasn't the first person probably pointed out, that in societies where there are only a few farmers, uh, farmers can do really well. In societies that are mostly agricultural, uh, they don't get a lot of favors. But say in Japan, rice is highly protected in Japan. There are very few rice farmers. Uh, That small number of people produces a large amount of the rice, just like in America, very small number of, of agricultural corporations produce an enormous proportion of the food, and, and they they use the government to exploit the rest of us. Uh, sugar quotas are, are an obvious example. Not, we talked about subsidies, but quotas are another example that you alluded to, trade policy, where we keep out foreign sugar just like Japan keeps out foreign rice. My, I probably mentioned it before, but my Japanese students, when I would be teaching uh, MBAs and I have Japanese – Students, they were always shocked at how good American rice was because they'd been told for years that it was awful. That's why we had to keep it out to keep it from, you know, destroying Japanese uh, cuisine. Just of course, it's was a lie, <laughs> a lie engendered by the political power of a small number of geographically important rice farmers in Japan, and similarly, a small number of sugar beet and sugarcane farmers in the Dakotas and in Florida. Keep keep out foreign sugar, uh, so that that hasn't changed. That that's that's as old as as <laughs> tail as old as time in America. That certain small groups of people get uh, favors. Why do you think that that the system is quote corrupt or or chronified? I'd call it. Um, I don't feel that. I I think there's a handful of industries that get special favors, and we can talk about which ones they are and why they get those favors. But overall, I'm not sure there's a lot of cronyism in American capitalism, and I'm not sure it's growing. And if it is, the burden is on all of us as scholars and thinkers to figure out what's changed. So give me a similar reaction to that.
1: Well, there are a bunch of issues there. I'll try not to take too long to respond by answering them one-to-one. But let's go back to 1944 when Hayek published The Road to Serfdom. And you could imagine one of his, someone else in England, saying, Now, Fritz, we're not a socialist country. Yes, there's a few sectors that are being planned, but we're not really a socialist country. Don't you think you're exaggerating? And the point that Hayek would make is yes, but what I'm doing is identifying a tendency, which, if we do not act on it, will result in more and more sectors being planned. So my answer to you is yes, we're not especially chronified yet, although there are a few industries where it's happening. But I don't know if you remember in the, the, the good Star Wars movie, well, the one that's number four, where um, Grand Moff Tarkin is on the bridge of the Death Star, and a guy comes in and says, we've analyzed their attacks sir, and there is a danger. Should I have your ship standing by? And Tarkin says, evacuate in our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Well, the point is, I've analyzed the attack of the left, and there is a danger. They actually have a point. Now, Marx's claim that this, the, 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 the animating force is driven by capitalism is actually not right. What I'm trying to do is say we should take public choice seriously. And what public choice says is that people in government act on their own self-interest, And the self-interest of people in government is trying to increase their power and to increase the things that they can use to raise money. And selling off rent-seeking opportunities is something that political entrepreneurs are likely to do. So I'm not claiming that this is entirely being driven by capitalists. So the the Marxist idea that the system will be driven by the narrow self-interest of capitalism, I think, is wrong. However, The system is driven by the broad self-interest of people in government to find ways to increase their power. So what I'm worried about is that if public choice is right and we cannot depend on the goodness of people in government and people in government can change the rules, then it's very likely that people in government, the legislators, regulators are going to approach industries and say, look, we can help you out. And if you don't play ball, we're going to hurt you. So in a way, it's a kind of protection or extortion racket. But still, the result is going to be a tendency towards cronyism. So I think that's the, the thing that I would make is, oh, the, only, the only criticism that I would make of your critique is, wait, we have to add something, and that is we have to take public choice seriously. The question that you said, one of good question is, well, why now? And I want to note the past, the passing of a, a giant, of a person that I have long admired, Anthony de Gessay, who died just a, not quite a month ago. And he had this very interesting critique of sort of public choice, the Buchanan theory of constitutions. And so you said the solution would be, let's have a constitution that puts rent-seeking beyond the ability of government to... Uh, to offer to, to move towards cronyism. Well, what De Gassai said was that constitutions are either ineffective or unnecessary. They're ineffective when everyone wants to do something the constitution prohibits. So a paper parchment barrier cannot stand when all of the incentives and the attitudes of people are let's go crony. But constitutions are not necessary when there is a shared commitment to the principles that are written in the constitution, and so I think for a very long time the United States got lucky because we, we we looked to the Constitution as containing a set expressing a set of values about the way that we should conduct ourselves in our in our private and our public lives, and that has started to be stripped away. Once that's true, we can't expect the Constitution to constrain the ability of people in government to rewrite the rules. So that's – that. once the state – once people in the state recognize that they can rewrite the rules to encourage rent-seeking, there's always going to be a relatively small number – of people in business that say, Why would I leave money on the table? And if there's not, somebody else can come in. If, when you consider the, mer- the market for mergers and acquisitions, this becomes a little bit more chilling. So, so let's suppose that you, Russ, are the CEO of a medium sized corporation and you say, We're not going to invest in rent seeking. We're not going to get subsidies. We're going to leave money on the table. And the employees say, You know, that's right because it's the wrong thing to do. Well, I'm a corporate raider, and I look and your stock price is lower than it could be because you could reallocate your capital in a way that would produce quite a bit more accounting profits if you would just go to the government and seek those subsidies, which are legal. Well, I put out a tender offer for your stock. I can buy up the stock because I can pay a higher price because I'm going to do the things that you will not do. Very quickly, you lose control of your corporation because I buy up all the stock. I hire a better, and I'm making quote marks, manager than you, a more rational manager than you, and now we're off to the races. And now the company that was good is now wise in the sense that they're they're maximizing their return on capital. Do I care if the return on capital is based on rent-seeking rather than honest profits? Well, maybe I do, but there's someone out there that doesn't. It doesn't take many at the margin to drive this system in the direction of crony capitalism.
0: I don't agree with that. Um, I'm going to try to push back against it in a different way in a minute, but I want to start with the more fundamental question that you raise. I mean, I'm sympathetic to it. I think it's a risk. I, I'm not, I don't think it's quite wrong, but I'll tell you what, I think there's some, part of the story is missing. But, I hope so. But, but Yeah, don't we all? I, I would uh, really yeah. like you to talk me yeah. out of this. Okay. I'm, I'm ready my to best. slash my wrists. I'm doing I'm do my best. Um, but I, I want to go back to, I want to go to a more fundamental question, which is, um, uh, why do, um, why is the murder rate uh, so low? There are a lot of people out there people don't like. They prefer to see him gone. Uh, There are a lot of things we can do as individuals that are deeply wrong and immoral. And I actually think there are people out there in the world who think that that the murder rate is low because it's against the law. And that's not why it's low. (laughs) It has an impact. I'm not going to suggest it's irrelevant, but it might be a small part of the story. Right, The main reason the murder rate is low is fortunately most people think it's the wrong thing to do, and they don't do it. So we understand that if you find a wallet in the street, uh, and it's got the person's driver's license, and it's got the person's credit cards, and it's got, say, $200 in cash, um, you've got a few options there. And nobody sees you pick it up, and you take it home, and you find out what's in it, and you've got some options. You could take the cash out and and return the wallet as a kindness. You could keep the cash in. Or you just keep the whole thing, keep the cash in the credit card, store it in the garbage. Um, I think at different times in human history and in different societies, the modal finder of that wallet would do different things. So I think deep down, you know, your to just say point about constitutions is is 100% right. He was right that a constitution that most people don't believe in is not going to be sustainable. Um... And it's true, I think, that the attitudes of the United States about the power of government have changed. I don't think the attitudes toward cronyism have changed much. I think most people are against it. Uh, most people would say it's wrong to favor particular industries over others and at the expense of consumers. And yet we get more of it perhaps than we used to have. Uh, but I think that's part of the attitude that's opened up the Pandora's box of let's let government do – let's let politicians do what they think is right rather than what's constrained by the Constitution. Once that attitude becomes widespread among lots of people uh yeah there's a lot of things on the table that weren't there before so, but but the idea that somehow it's okay we understand that that that, a, that cronyism is is tempting yeah so there's a lot of dishonest horrible things you wouldn't say that a stock is underpriced because the, the the uh the people don't engage in fraud right we don't expect a, a CEO we don't say well CEOs of course frauds against the law but if they can get away with it we'd expect them to because after all, will raise their stock price. I don't say that. Do you say that? I don't say that. So how, how do you reconcile that with your story that, well, of course, there's a natural temptation to use the government to, to extract goodies from the rest of us?
1: Surely you're not claiming that it is somehow morally equivalent for me to lobby the senator from my state for subsidies for my business, which is about to fail, and murder. The first is not only legal, I can find someone who will persuade themselves that it's moral, and in fact, it's a great benefit. It doesn't take many people to say, not only is this legal, it's morally okay. This isn't cronyism. This is the way that capitalism works. I see it all around me. The other difference is that it is scale, I mean, murder happens one at a time, but if companies grow using the the Misesian logic of profit and loss, then if a company can increase its profits by seeking subsidies successfully, then that company is going to grow rapidly, and so the the economy will come to be dominated by those companies. The economy, the national economy, is going to quickly become dominated by precisely those companies that, at the margin, are successful using profit and loss. And the ones who seek subsidies are going to grow faster. So I, I, I think that we have produced, and I I would I worry a bit about the, the – if you go to be an MBA, you are probably taught that what you should do is – accept all legal means to increase the profits of your company. And in fact, Milton Friedman famously argued something that could almost be, and that's not what he said, but you could almost interpret it that way. The only responsibility of the corporation is to seek profits. Now he would say, oh, but of course you shouldn't do rent. He
0: says, well, he says explicitly no, without fraud, keeping the the laws
1: of the land. Agreed. not fraud. I agree with you. So with the what you're doing, Russ, is you're saying you're actually resorting to the thing that we cannot do, and that is good people. Oh, no, no. All not. we have to have <laughs> – yes, you're, you're saying no fraud. You're saying no fraud, and what you mean by fraud is the legal pursuit of means that many people accept as legitimate. But you're saying I think people won't do it because it's wrong, because no. it's just morally wrong. It's not illegal.
0: Here's what I'm saying. Um, Here's what I'm actually saying, rather than what you'd like to think I'm saying. The like, mischaracterization. <laughs> exactly. Now, the tendentious now, mischaracterization. Yes, and and cruel, actually. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to restate it in a more uh, um, acceptable way. and I, I understand there's still a flaw in it, but I'll, I'll, maybe you won't find it, so I'm going to take a shot. Um, <laughs> I, what I'm trying to argue is that culture and norms matter a lot, Um if you have a world where people don't um, have a moral compass, I'm not sure any system works very well, right? Uh, I also believe that certain systems enhance a moral compass, and some destroy it. Uh, I think in a in the Soviet Union, uh, you were a sucker if you played by the rules because no one did. You know that my. My one of my fa- I have a lot of favorite jokes. It's not good English, but one of my favorite jokes of of the Soviet Union is, which I heard from a someone who grew up there is you know we we pretended to work and they pretended to pay us yeah you know that kind of system where you know basically he was describing a factory where you know people stole I think they were making stockings and he said theft out of the <laughs> out of the inventory was common. You know, it was how you made money. It was the only way you take, you got paid. It's the only way you made put food on the table of your family was to steal some of the stuff. So that's a system that that distorts and brings out the worst. I think in people. Uh, Adam Smith argued, as you know, that capitalism does the opposite. It forces you to put yourself in the shoes of other people and figure out what they want. It forces you to imagine uh, being empathetic about their desires and their 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 needs. And I think it – I'm not – I don't want to be naive. I don't want to be uh, Pollyannish, and I don't want to pretend – I don't want to suggest that, oh, the only – it's easy to fix this. We just need to change norms and culture. But I don't think you can talk about this descent into cronyism that you're accusing the American system of and suggesting it's going to get worse and ignore the cultural and educational world we're in. I'll give you an example. Uh when when I get too much money back from the cashier, I give it back. At least I think because I do. You're,
1: you're rich enough to be able to afford your preferences. You want to think well of yourself, and you're rich. You can give it back. So that it's just a it's a it's a luxury good. You're wealthy enough. you you're you can afford to be able to think well of yourself. Most people can't do that. They'll happily take the money. I did it when I
0: was making eighteen thousand dollars a year. By you're, the way, as an assistant you're, professor, you're, you're,
1: but you're a good person. Well, boss. I don't know if
0: I am or not. Maybe I just had a. I had a, my parents raised me poorly to, to be honest. When in fact I'm a sucker, right? Only a sucker gives right. There's two ways to look at that. What a what a noble thing to do, or what a sucker. And I think when you when you transition to a world where you're the sucker, for for being honest or, and failing to exploit opportunities like that, you. Uh, you're in the you're on the road to hell, uh, whether it's socialism or capitalism, and you know I think I'm conceding that I think that there's something endogenous about the culture we're in, right? Obviously, and you make that point implicitly in your paper, and you made it earlier, right? Once you start thinking, huh, everybody else is taken, I mean, why shouldn't I? And, and in fact, if I don't, I'm gonna, I'm not, my firm's not going to survive. I have to fire my workers, all so be laid off, so it doesn't matter. Is the right thing to do. I convinced myself. But I do think, you know, the, the example is uh, you know, I should I should get a special deal for my company, my industry, my situation, because because everybody else is at the trough. Of course, you know, that's the ultimate government is public bad. That's where the the, the tragedy of the commons is uh, is running amok, and I to to bring it full circle, you know, you and I I think believe, you can tell me if I'm wrong. … that we think the tragedy of the commons in private settings can be overcome by norms and by uh, self-monitoring if groups are small and it's observable that people are uh, sending their cows out at night and, and eat grazing when when it's not their turn. So so how do you deal with that?
1: I, I actually want to turn now and agree with you. I was obviously trying to make the provocative form of the argument… I just think – I don't know if you know this, Russ. You and I are weird. There's a lot of economists that. that would not concede the value, the central importance of norms and culture. They would look instead to institutions. So let me let me state – I'm not sure what's the difference point- between those. Well, right. I've, maybe the, if you drew a Venn diagram, there's very substantial overlaps. Norms, I think, are individual concept. Culture is something that is a, a larger collective concept from which norms come. But l- let me let me state the technical claim that I'm making. What I'm asking is: is honest? Is the honest pursuit of profits? an evolutionarily stable strategy in the game theory sense, or if it's invaded by mutants. It doesn't take many mutants. You're looking at the relative rates of reproduction in a game theory system. A mutant that is not the pursuit of honest profit, but instead is willing to pursue any legal profits, won't the invasion of those mutants result in the proliferation of that form of uh, an agent and I'm worried that the answer is yes, that it's easy for them to expand. I think I was just in um, Guatemala at Universidad Francisco Marroquín and was able to give a number of talks on this subject and got to talk quite a bit to their rector, Gabriel Calzado. And the, the thing that I... You know, I'm, I'm an outsider. I'm in no position to urge anything, but they teach a lot of people economics, Austrian economics. I said, I urge you to think of the importance of character. I think that one thing that the people on our side have failed to do is to emphasize the importance of character, to emphasize the importance of of perpetuating the norms of saying there are right ways and wrong ways to do things. And even if it is technically legal in the sense that you won't get caught or punished, there are still profit opportunities that you should eschew. Now, the question is, can we do that enough to make the pursuit of honest profits an evolutionarily stable strategy, because it, you're always going to be invaded by outsiders to that system that don't share those don't don't share that value that this is the correct way to act. So I don't know if we can make the system immune, but perhaps if because if you look at the you've taught in a business school the business ethics class usually is you look at a list of criminals. <laughs> And then say, now don't do that, and don't do that. And the, I don't know that we can. We we don't teach the 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 character as something that's very central. And frankly, I'm not sure how to do it. So what I would like to do is turn back towards the idea that there are right and wrong. And this, I mean, Adam Smith would be surprised to learn that this is something that I think economics now doesn't do. Um, because it was, it was the core of much of what Adam Smith thought was important. So I want to come back and agree with you now that I had made the argument in its starkest form, but it's still true that if you take the public choice argument seriously, that you cannot say we have good people in government or we have good people in, and by good, I mean willing to leave money on the table, in, in a way, irrational. Because there are are legal means of acquiring profits that I'm not going to do because I personally think they're morally wrong. Unless we have that resort, unless that's something that we can invoke, I do think the system has an undeniable tendency towards cronyism.
0: Well, you know, I guess it's a – you could argue it's a – too fine a line to argue that I'm. I'm not arguing that we need good people. We just need people with good morals, good norms, good values. I, you know, I I I understand there's still something a little bit uh, uh, utopian about about believing that. But I but I don't think it's so long ago that that people would have thought it wrong to take advantage of every opportunity. I would suggest, by the way, that one of the challenges in America maybe in the world of being a modern human being, and we've, you and I have probably talked about this before, but w- w- why would it ever cross your mind that everything that's legal should be done <laughs> or everything that's legal should be allowed? And the flip side of that is everything that's bad should be illegal. We, we want a space for self-monitoring, self-regulation, uh, where we don't need lo- the the legislative power and coercive power of the state to 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 maintain stuff, you know, you know, a trivial but not an interesting example. Of this is tipping in a restaurant that you've never uh, ex- that you never expect to come back to. You're on a trip. You're in, it's a one time thing. I still tip. Now, you could argue I'm a fool. Why? Why should? And, and you know, we've talked about this before, and. At length in in other episodes, uh, we'll put a link up to it. But but my point is, is that it would never. There were a lot of people who just said, "Well, but that's the right thing to do." When you go from a world where the right thing to do is irrelevant, and all that matters is whether you're going to be caught or screamed at by the waiter or beat up by the waiter down who chases you down the street, that's a bad world to be. And I don't want to be in that world. If we don't have character, if we don't have norms of decency and Oh, and some trust and a willingness to to leave money on the table. It's not a place. That's not a world. You and I want. I don't want to live in that world. I'd rather live in a different world. And I don't think it's totally naive to think that that world. I know it existed, and I still think it exists to a large extent. Because um, when my uh, when my wife lost her diamond earring in the uh, in, in Great Tetons. Uh, National Park in the lodge we were staying in, and the visiting Eastern European maid gave it back to us because she found it sweeping up. There was no way she was going to get caught keeping that hearing. Uh-huh. She didn't even know it was my wife's. It could have been left there by somebody. It was on the floor in the kitchen under a counter. Someone could, it could have been three guests back, and she's giving it back to us. It's hundred. It's worth. It's not a big diamond earring. It's worth a few hundred dollars. But as you say, that's a lot of money. Yeah. To somebody who's a housekeeper. Uh huh. And it's even a lot of money to me. I was, you know, <laughs> my, my wife was really upset for emotional reasons. I, w- I was like, it's okay. Just you know, it's part of life. Things like this happen. But, but the housekeeper gave it back. That's virtue. That's the world. I think we all want to live, in. we want to live in a world where people return our diamond earrings. Um, and I don't think it's so – I don't think it's ridiculous to imagine. That. I do think it might be ridiculous to think we can get there from here. We can increase it. We know how to do that. And I agree with you that an ex- ethics class in business isn't going to
1: do it. Um, but the, the 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 difference is both of your examples were basically interpersonal relationships. So murder, which is, which is both immoral and illegal, and the return of something or tipping, the things that uh, I'm acting in – You know, binary relationships with between people. I think that system can be sustained if there is a few people who act badly, because there are social pressures to act well. We get reward. We get the esteem of other people. We feel and of uh, those of you playing the drinking game I'm going to say it we're not going to just be loved but we're also going to be lovely we're going to be deserving yep. of so the the probably that maid she would have felt bad if she'd kept the earring she felt good you know I'm actually a good person I'm yep. the sort of person that deserves the respect of other people that system is stable with respect to some people who act badly The problem with capitalism is that its very dynamism means that if you have only a relatively few people who are willing to act badly, that company could very rapidly expand because it's more profitable. It's more profitable to engage in rent-seeking activities. And that means that it's not restricted just to individual actions. I'm a corporate CEO. I don't care that other people think badly of me for charging high prices and receiving subsidies because I'm earning money hand over fist. So that I, I worry about the dynamism of capitalism being used against it in the sense that if I approach a politician and can get the help of just a small sector of government, I can rapidly expand at the expense of my op- opponents precisely because they're acting morally. So the the I, I do worry about the scaling aspect of this, but I do think somehow we need to reincorporate this idea of character and the importance of Norms. So you asked me to distinguish before the difference between you know, individual norms and culture. Culture probably is the thing that reproduces this, but it also needs to, I think we've talked about this before on the show, Chile and Argentina spend almost exactly the same amount on uh, tax compliance enforcement. But in Argentina, the tax Compliance rate is maybe sixty percent, maybe less. In Chile, it's ninety nine percent. Well, it, if you don't pay your taxes in Chile, other people think, "Well, you're a terrible person." And if if you don't, if you do pay your taxes in Argentina, people think, "Well, you're an idiot. You're a chump." Nobody does that. So Argentina <laughs> tried to hire some people. To, so some, some, uh, football players, some actresses to go on TV and do ads about how you should pay their, your taxes. They had to pull the ads within two weeks because all of the actors had not paid their taxes. There's two different equilibria. One is everybody does the right thing. And if you don't do the right thing, you're a bad person. The second equilibrium is nobody does the right thing. And if you do the right thing, you're an idiot. And I worry that. The second one is the one that we're tending towards, and while there's still time, and it's not too late, while there's still time, we need to call people's attention to the fact that there is actually a danger, that the, the complaint of the left about capitalism is not in, entirely ill-founded.
0: Well, I can say that. Uh, and have before, so I, I, you know, I agree with you. That's why I invite you on, Mike. It's not because it's, it's an interesting article, or you've been on 35 times. Uh, I just want to just to put a footnote on that story about the diamond de- uh, the diamond earring, um, and the tipping episode we did was with Anthony Gill. Uh, we'll put a link up to that. But uh, as fate would have it, and it's um, I can't explain this. Uh, I left an exceptionally large tip for the housekeeper that morning. Uh, by my standards it's not a large tip in any sense and we've talked about this before i i usually leave a dollar or two a night uh for my housekeeper when i stay in a hotel i think it's a nice thing to do um i don't know whether it's i'm not going to suggest everyone should do it but i like it and it's i think it's a good thing to do for some reason um we i left uh I, we'd been there i think three or four nights four nights i think I think I left a $20 tip, uh, which is just still not a huge amount of money. But I don't know if that played a role in the housekeeper's decision to return the um, the earring. It's an interesting question. Uh, we've talked about the idea that one reason to tip housekeepers is that you do leave things behind. Uh, uh, it makes, right. And it, it's just – it's a weird – it's not a contract, <laughs> but, it, but it does engender perhaps some goodwill on the part of the housekeeper – uh, and and i will also add that that i tipped her i don't know how much money i gave her for returning it and i think she took it <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but i think i gave her another 20 or 40 dollars just as uh-huh. a thank you for her honesty um and it was so over- i mean my wife was deliriously happy uh at finding it and um so i just yeah, she I, was a-
1: she was probably more happy than the value of the oh, earring actually meant. absolutely! This is great. Yeah, absolutely. No, because
0: it, it, it wasn't a it wasn't her fault, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But but uh, the other point I want to make though is you said you know CEO gets a subsidy or whatever. Uh, I own a Ford Escape, and I would say I'm an exception. I understand this, but I'm not alone. One of the reasons I own a Ford Escape, I also own a Honda Accord. But one of the reasons I own a Ford escape is that Ford did not take money yeah. in the bailouts of during the financial crisis. It, that could have been the equilibrium. Oh my gosh, yeah. GM and, and Chrysler took bailouts. Oh, we're not going to buy their cars anymore. And, and I, I, I say that because these predations that we're talking about that that lobbyists and CEOs extract from the rest of us. They're not secret. Now they're not always well known. They're not waved about all the time like Fords. A lot of times you have to read the paper carefully, and I think it's strange that newspapers don't maybe have a special section uh, or a special um, tally on their website for, for local cronyism, because I think that would help people get. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's the um, anyway. It, it's you know to me it's like the hall of shame. Uh, it's not the hall of of hey look I got what I what I could. It's the hall of shame you took from me. Uh, so I think that publicness has some leverage, perhaps in the future uh, or could it's imaginable. But it does make the problem a little bit harder because it's not oh behind your back I took advantage of you or I kept your wallet or I didn't return the earring. It's that it's out in the public. It's out in the open now. It's true as you I think we're saying earlier. They do tend to figure out ways to make it look like they're doing it in the public
1: interest. Well, maybe even to persuade themselves, I think there, – and again, Russ, there's just not many people like you, and the world is the worst place for it. I wish there were more. <laughs> but I've I, – I, I don't watch that much TV, but I watch some. I have never seen – a Ford ad that said, oh, buy a Ford because we (laughs) did not take any subsidies. So if if that were salient, if that were socially salient, it would be – because you don't have to have the newspaper do it. The company should be able to advertise, and if it worked, if people actually cared about that. But you raise a good point. One of the things that we use to flog things like fair trade coffee – and the actual social impact of fair trade coffee is probably less than many people believe but they'll advertise and say this is fair trade coffee you should pay a little extra if
0: right we left money on the table we overpaid yeah. for
1: this so you should yeah. too <laughs> yeah well but that that works and that that's an example of the kind of thing that you're talking about people are willing to pay at least a little bit extra for doing the right thing now you know what the right thing is maybe can be manipulated a little bit but all that would be necessary is for consumers to say, nope, we're not going to be complicit in these kinds of rent-seeking activities. We're going differentially to seek those companies that have behaved in a way that's socially responsible. And what I mean by socially responsible is the pursuit of honest profit. And so maybe that, that's the word that's going to go out from this time and place. Like ripples on a pond, you have now started a new consumer revolution, Russ. I'm so no. <laughs> I'm so excited. Uh, uh, I, I just want to read. I just
0: want to read a line from uh, David Foster Wallace. Uh, he has an essay called "Host." It's quite an interesting essay. It's um, I think it was written around 2004 in the heyday of conservative talk radio, which has morphed into um, talk radio has morphed into Twitter and Facebook and and uh, I. David Foster Wallace, of course, is gone, unfortunately, tragically. uh, But I want to say to him as I read his essay, you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, he's talking about the incentives that talk radio faces. And he has a line in there. He says, aren't there parts of ourselves that are just better left unfed? And that's really hard for us. It's really hard for us, as, as end of the quote, is unfed. It's really hard for us to say, I can have this, but I shouldn't. Yeah. And our culture right now is, if you're hungry, feed it. And that includes rent-seeking, it includes subsidies, it includes tariffs, it includes food, it includes everything. It's all on the table. Nothing's foregoing things has become um, – a, it's a fool's game. And I think it would be great if we got back to a different uh, different world.
1: Well, may I read uh- – a. A quote from Jose Ortega y Gasset. So in The Revolt of the Masses in 1929, he wrote this about liberalism, and it'll take me 20 seconds to read. It's, it's not that long, but liberalism, it is well to recall this today, is the supreme form of generosity. It's the right which the majority concedes to minorities. It's the noblest cry that's ever resounded in the planet, It announces the determination to share existence with the enemy. More than that, with an enemy that is weak. It is incredible that the human species should have arrived at so noble an attitude, so paradoxical, so refined, so acrobatic, so anti-natural. Hence, it is not to be wondered at that this same humanity would soon appear anxious to get rid of it. It is a discipline too difficult and complex to take firm root on Earth. So, liberalism means that you have to That's not the, end of the do quote. yeah that end of quote liberalism means that you have to not do things which you could legally do because you recognize that you have a larger duty to the system not to exploit it and that I mean we see that in politics where liberalism means that someone you disagree with violently is still allowed to speak. In economics, we see it where I could go and get a subsidy or a restriction on the ability of new competitors to enter the industry, and yet I say, nope, we have to do that because th- that's the the system that we're part of. So the that that system's really fragile, and that Ortega y Gasset book was written before Schumpeter. So it's interesting that in the twenties, thirties, and forties, there was quite this exactly the same pessimism. That Mario and I are expressing and we're I I think that there was more concern then that you see these concentrated industries that were getting power from government and in, in a way what we've done is gone back to that. There was a period of pretty robust liberalism and capitalism in the 60s, 70s and 80s we see the dramatic expansion of democracy, this sort of triumphalism of liberalism in the 90s. And now I think some of that optimism that we saw from Francis Fukuyama and other writers who said, you know, history's over, we're done, liberalism and democracy have won. That optimism, it's going to require continued work on on the, the part of all of us in order to sustain the values that we think are essential. Well, that's a really deep quote um and, and the idea of you know doing
0: not doing what comes naturally is um it's unnatural it's hard to do It's yeah. uh, and and maybe it's not sustainable maybe uh but that's like saying civilization's not sustainable so i'm not quite that ready for that level of depressing uh, reality uh i want to go back to uh a critique of an earlier point you made because I think this is uh, this is um, relevant. actually I want to say I want to say something first, which is we both mentioned in passing this idea that you could fool yourself into thinking that what's good for you is good for other people, like taking that subsidy is important or keeping out your competitors because they're low quality. We need licensing because we don't want to let you know scam artists come in and exploit people. Yeah, your
1: your rice example earlier is great because yeah. if the rice were really bad, you wouldn't have to exclude it. People would say this rice <laughs> is bad. It, re- it, re- it requires a
0: um, a further point and belief in people's uh, gullibility to because to, they might be fooled and think it's good rice. We have to keep it away from them. Uh, but I but I do want to add. I think it's ex- I think this is extremely important for the, um, the economists and would be economists uh, listening. I I know there are a number of graduate students. And uh, undergraduate econ majors who listen to Econ Talk. Uh, It's one thing for Tim Geithner uh, or um, Ben Bernanke or President Bush or President Obama to argue that we had to bail out all the banks, almost all the banks, 100 cents on the dollar, because if we didn't, the world would come to an end. So I think that was a lie. Uh, I don't think the world would have come to an end if they'd gotten, say, 80 cents on the dollar. I don't think the world would have come to an end if instead of bailing out banks, we'd bailed out homeowners. Uh, I think we bailed out banks because they're politically powerful, and uh, politicians take a lot of money from them. And that was the worst cronyism of our lifetime, the financial crisis of 2008 and how it was handled. And I think we're going to live with the costs for a long time. And I think we're in the middle of those costs, even though, oh, well, we saved the world. It's great. Uh, We didn't. We encourage people to use the system to exploit the rest of us. Uh, We destroyed people's faith in democracy. We destroyed people's faith in capitalism. I think it was a terrible, terrible mistake. But that economists have to applaud that is inexcusable. That economists become the uh, enablers of that by saying, yeah, well, the system, it would have been a crisis, of course. Uh, ATM machines might have stopped Economists have no um, moral th- foot to stand on when they argue. When we argue, and I'm not one of them, so I don't like to say we. When they argue that, well, of course they did the right thing. It was terrible. It was the it was it was the best choice available. But it, but it was terrible. We shouldn't say that. We should have we should have been out there suggesting alternatives. And when we look back on it as history, we should say it was a terrible mistake. And 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 of course, as as Engali's Luigi Zingales has pointed out on Income Talk. We're just like everybody else. We have our own incentives. We like being part of the system too. So let's not fool ourselves, folks. Let's call it like it is. And I think that was a really horrible set of policy decisions that were made in 2008. I invite all economists to join me in saying so. And I think saying otherwise, to give them the intellectual cover for that kind of uh, exploitation of the taxpayer and the average person is, is inexcusable. You,
1: I, I hear you, I'm with you, but listen to yourself. What you basically said was these incentives appear to be irresistible for two reasons. One, we want to be part of the system. And as yeah. Zingales has said, there's actual monetary incentives. Yeah. You, get, you get paid better if you're a consultant for this sort of view. And then you said, but I want to live in a different world. Well, that's the thing that makes it, I mean, you literally said that, and so do I. I can imagine a different world. The question is, just in terms of A to B to C, how can we have a combination of a structure of material incentives and intellectual ideas, uh, an explanation that makes people say, this is the problem that we have. It involves character and norms. I worry that economics has abandoned the position of emphasizing character, norms, and morality, and one of the reasons that I'm a political scientist and philosopher rather than an economist in terms of my academic affiliation is precisely that I, I'm worried about the structure of preferences and the sustainability of the, the willingness of people to try to act in the right way, even if it may be illegal. And let me emphasize, the real problem here is the ability of rational state actors to restructure the legal rules in ways that over time could corrupt moral character that might otherwise prevent a move in this direction. So the, the real problem is we have to take the public choice objection seriously, Members, people who work for the, the state, people, elected officials and bureaucrats are rational and they're entrepreneurs. They're looking for ways to increase their power. Now, that doesn't necessarily make them bad people. Maybe, you know, it would be better if we, we had uh, a system where that weren't true, but I can't imagine what it would be. What we need is voters that will say, no, I'm not going to accept that. So the character of voters and consumers ultimately will drive the system. I'm just not sure that we're even trying to do that at this point, except for this excellent podcast. (laughs) Uh, You're you're kind. Um, I I want to draw a distinction to
0: um, bring home your your criticism of my little uh, rant there, which is a distinction between George Stigler and Milton Friedman. George Stigler looked at the world and laughed. You know, he, he observed it. He saw those incentives and he didn't think he could do anything about it. Milton Friedman was the opposite. Milton Friedman said, this is wrong. I'm going to speak out against it. Now, we can debate about what their relative impacts have been on the world, and you can debate about Friedman's uh, academic work versus his polemical work. But, but I just want to concede your point that that little speech I gave a second ago about economists should do this, that's preaching, it's not social science. <laughs> it's not economics. It's preaching. I'm I'm asking the economists out there listening to this, and and in theory the ones who aren't listening to join me in what is effectively a moral crusade. Yeah. Not a uh, study. Not research. It's saying, don't we want to live in this world? And we understand that it's t- it's easy and fun to free ride on the on when people act morally. Right. Uh, but it's the wrong thing to do. And I think it's good to, to talk about that. Even if I understand that the incentives to act otherwise or otherwise, I, I mean, you just take a more trivial example. I, I think, uh, studying econometrics is somewhat corrupting because it encourages you to believe that you can measure things accurately that some of the which you can't, um, uh, and yet, I understand that if you're 27 years old and you've just come out with a, a field in econometrics, you're going to do a lot of econometric work, some of which is not going to be maybe as reliable as you'd like it to be. And the incentives, which we've talked about many times in this program, to publish things that are not dishonest, not not fraud, but just simply you convince yourself that, that this set of regressions that led to a significant coefficient, those are the ones that are the right ones. And the ones that didn't, those were wrong for other reasons. And I'm just you know, I tell people on this program, don't be like that. Now, that's bad career advice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get it. Uh, but, but, you know, I want to look in the mirror every morning and, and be relatively pleased with what I see. Uh, and I hope other people do, too. And that's, again, it's the world I want to live in. I want to encourage people to live in that world.
1: And there's the what, the, what I like about that argument is that it's it's true That we probably don't have direct material incentives to defend free markets in the context of the right thing to do. But it's important that we do it nonetheless. And actually, one of the things that started me after I heard um, through several podcasts, there was a paper in 2004 by um, Ray John and Zingales, and they said, The behavior of government is determined in part by public mood, but to a greater extent, it is also determined by the special interests being regulated. This is why the free market system is is fragile. Not economically, but politically, while everyone benefits from competitive markets, no one in particular makes huge profits from keeping the system competitive and the playing field level. Thus, nobody has a strong vested interest in promoting and defending free markets. Now one thing to do is what Stigler did and th- end quote. One thing to do is what Stigler did and throw up your hands and say, "Well, you know th- this is amusing." And Stigler did take great and immunity. study it and measure yeah, it. Yeah. we can study it. It's, it's interesting to watch. But another would be to, in spite of the fact that we have no direct material incentive, to point out nonetheless it's still really important. And there, there's a lot of things which collectively we can, as a as a culture, as a as a nation. I don't want to get too sort of fake patriotic here, but it, there's. It is important that we say it precisely because it's not in anyone's direct material interest. And that is an important part of teaching. And I I really worry that economists have abdicated their responsibility to at least offer fair-minded commentary, listen to arguments. This is not a church, but the, the, the preaching part of it is to say this occurs in a larger cultural context, and that context matters. Let's talk about that.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, and now that brings me to the the other point I want to make, which is: uh, don't you think a lot of this concern about cronyism is not about the passing of time or the maturing of industries or the or the sclerotic nature of democracy, but is the outcome of an economic process in particular industries and those industries alone. And elsewhere, it's not a problem. Uh, there's huge parts of the American economy that aren't particularly cronyized, where people have to make good products. If they don't make good products, they go out of business. They're highly competitive. Uh, and those sectors do great. Uh, and a large part of our life is 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 blessed by those kinds of products, produced by those kinds of Industries that are highly competitive, there's no option for them to to cartelize through the cronyous system. They can't. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Too Transaction costs are too high. Uh, maybe it's antitrust laws, but they don't for whatever reason. Uh, but it's those other industries that are highly concentrated. I say, Here's what I'm arguing. I don't think concentration is the inevitable result of capitalism, and I don't think – it's the inevitable result of every industry. I do think that in 2019 there are a handful of areas where very large firms in, that are few in number are able to wield political power in in ways that are quite destructive. But that's where the problem is, you know. It's it's the uh, it's the information uh, world we live in where. Google and Facebook, they have to compete, but I think they make some serious monopoly profit, and some of that profit is is through legislation or certain property rights that have been established or that are not established. I, I think that matters a lot. Uh, I think the banking industry we've talked about it is highly uh, uh, blessed by political goodies outside of that, and I mentioned farming. And there is creeping licensing problems, which we've talked about on the program before, and and I know you're aware of those. But so much of the rest of the economy is just like doing great and doesn't seem cronyized or might be a naive there.
1: I think you're right. I'm worried about the tendency, and the thing that struck me in writing the article was it's just a calculus problem in a way. Of Microsoft for example for a long time said we're not going to have any lobbyists we're we're just going to sell our product we're not going to have any lobbyists then they got an antitrust trouble they had a couple of lobbyists now they have a building so some of this is a process of maturation so it's true that in a new industry you're focused on an uh, if you're you're making something in a new market at first you're the the profit opportunities just from making better, cheaper products. You're going to keep hiring engineers. But it doesn't take that many years before, as a matter just of calculus, at the margin, the next dollar that I'm going to invest can more profitably be put into lobbying than it can into engineering. It may take a while for that to happen. The other thing that I worry about is that many of the the smaller companies have either found a way or the government has offered this as an opportunity there's been a huge increase in the number of professions that require licensing yep. and you you've had a couple of people on the program to talk about this that's sort of operating in the background and the the cases, the more egregious cases are pretty upsetting, but in North Carolina, you have to have quite a few more hours to be a hairdresser than to be an emergency medical technician. So the, the, the barriers to entry that it's possible to erect that we don't really notice very much, I think are there's an accretion of these, I don't want to use a, a bat guano metaphor, but it's piling up all over the economy. And I worry that if you do a study of it, there is actually has been a big increase over time. So I I would worry both about the mature industries problem and the professional licensing uh, proliferation that I think we probably are seeing more cronyism slowly creeping up. Then I, then you might expect if you weren't thinking about it in those terms, because it it is easy to look at the large dynamic parts of the economy and say everything's just fine. Let's try to do something before it's too late. Even if you're right, even if we're doing okay, let's make sure we don't go any farther in that direction. You now, part of the reason I think that
0: cronyism is uh, in the state of capitalism or under converse, in the conversation to the extent that they are is a, a belief which our listeners will know belief i think is false a belief that the rich have somehow captured all the gains for themselves of economic growth and this is an insidious uh belief i don't think it's true but if you think it's true if you believe it if you believe that the rich have rigged the system so that the average person doesn't get any of the benefits of the from the economy then you've got to believe that yeah cronyism is rampant Capitalism is corrupt, and some form of socialism is, is desirable, and I think that is part of what's underlying the current political conversation we're having in America, which is a widely held view, certainly among mainstream media, uh, pundits, columnists, and many academics, that's, that over the last 40 years, there's been no progress for the average person. If you believe that, then the system is corrupt. I don't believe that. I think that greatly exaggerates the – I think it's literally not true. And I think it greatly exaggerates the severity of the problem we face. Um, and it, in, in it instead of thinking, oh, yeah, well, I guess we need to be on guard about this, it's like, well, we've got to tear down the system.
1: I I feel like you're Grand Moff Tarkin, and I've come in and said, I've analyzed their attack. There is a danger. And in fact, 2008 and 2009, the events in the financial industry shook my own faith for just the reasons you say. That's, in fact, there was pretty good evidence that very substantial concentrations of wealth were just baldly protected by the state in a way that has absolutely no justification. And we made up this false narrative about how it actually saved the world. It was good and moral that we repaid 100 cents on the dollar out of taxpayers who were the ones who had been ripped off in the first place. So I think there is actually a danger. Now, you can say that I think they overestimate their chances. I think they have a pretty good chance. And even if, they, if, if the next election results in a move towards the left economically that isn't as far as I'm worried about. It isn't just the the elections that are the concern. It's the sense that people have that the left is winning this debate. And I think unless we bring back the notion that culture and the right thing to do, because the left constantly talks about morals and the right thing to do. And many people on the right will just say, no, no, markets are a better system. We make a consequentialist argument, and we need to say, no, it's actually a better moral system, too, because it rewards virtue and hard work, and here's the evidence for it. I think unless we can do that, we're ultimately going to lose the debate because we're conceding the notions of character to the left, whereas, in fact, we actually have a good position.
0: My guest today has been Mike Munger. Mike, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Thank you, Russ.